morning. Thank you, Lou. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, April 12th, 2017. I'm, um, I'm back from traveling a little disoriented. I expected the double room because this is also part of our Shield Our Children from Harm annual conference on child abuse and neglect. And Dr. Alexander spoke yesterday when we had, uh, I think, an extra full room, a full capacity conference. So this is the this is the capstone rather than the, the, the beginning of that conference. So we welcome Dr. Alexander to town, and we're really pleased to have Randall Alexander here joining us. He is um, professor in chief of the Division of Child Protection and Forensic Pediatrics at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. Um, he has had quite the distinguished career. I was notified, and I didn't get a chance to ask you, Randy, about a recent a national honor from the Health for Society, which, as you may know, because of the distinguished uh, speakers we've had at this conference annually is the is really the leading national society for those who are in child abuse pediatrics. So he was honored for his teaching, um, and um, we'll just go through an impressive CV. Dr. Alexander received a PhD, an MD in uh, at Wayne State University and a PhD at the University of Mich uh, Michigan, where he started his medical career, but really kicked off as an assistant professor at the University of Iowa, working his way up through the ranks, moving to Morehouse School of Medicine, where he was associate professor and then professor, and has been at the University of Florida since 2004 as professor, as mentioned, in chief of child protection and forensic pediatrics. Um, his uh, CV notes uh, some th 48 peer-reviewed articles in publications and 73 book chapters and books actually edited himself. Uh, I think it's notable that he's been a member of the American Pediatric Society since 2010, which has really recognized the highest level of scholarship in the field of pediatrics and is an elected society um, that you must be um, nominated for and achieved. I would... Um, have to note that in addition to numerous leadership roles at the American Academy in Pediatrics as well as um, the Cell Health Society and other societies, Dr. Helfer, uh, Dr. Dr. Alexander's first published article noted in 1984, he was actually a co-author with Dr. Helfer on his first publication. So truly, I think one of the leaders and giants in uh, in the field. I think, unfortunately, Deb Pullen is, uh, I think, sick and unable to uh, offer any um, uh, glimpses. But I know she's thrilled that he joined us. And I'm sorry I missed yesterday, but look forward to this morning's grand rounds. Well, thanks. Um, it also feels a little bit like, you know, when someone describes that stuff, it's sort of like rings around a tree or something else like that. It just shows you've been around a long time and, and accumulated moss, I guess, or something like that. Um, it's nice to be here. I was pleased you had Florida weather for me yesterday. Um, I recognize this weather, but uh, uh, when I head back to Florida, fortunately, it's going to be a little bit nicer, um, at least for now, until the humidity and heat hit kicks in. Um, I want to talk about medical neglect this, this morning. It's, um, I, I'm trying to think, you know, what part of medicine is medical neglect not impact on? And um, uh, there might be such a, a part of medicine, but for anybody that's clinical, um, it's basically somebody's not doing what we want them to do. Um, now, 
that's going to happen sometimes uh, with people, and, and we work through it and uh, go crazy and drives us nuts and keeps us awake and all that. But one of the things that yesterday, when I actually gave the same talk <coughs> to the conference, one of the things I wanted to point out with DCYF and DCF, um, or what we call Child Protective Services, is that um, the doctor isn't going to make a report of child abuse saying that it's medical neglect until we've already exhausted a lot of stuff. So when, when they get that report and then they contact you, hopefully they are, and they say, well, have you thought of this or have you thought of that? Yes, we have thought of that. We have been working that through. We are calling you because we've already done all those things and we're at the point of exhaustion, not at the point that we're just sort of starting it. So that's something that I think is a communication issue. I think we don't always get through to them, you know, exactly where we stand on things. So this morning, and I, I don't have a conflict slide, but you know, us child abuse docs, we don't make any money on anything. So, um, um, I actually do work in a system, uh, which is a different talk, and we've got some slides from yesterday. But uh, I was asked to talk about our Florida system, and the reason I uh, ended up in Florida in part is because it's actually a state-funded medical uh, child abuse system where we have $20 million to, um, for our child prote protection team run by doctors, uh, part of the Department of Health. And um, uh, so I, my team in Jacksonville is actually the largest child protection team. We span eight counties and get over $2 million um, to, to run that from the state. So. It's uh, something that uh, I would hope that we all can move to some sort of a state funding system. Because for child abuse, you have to salary people. It's not a fee-for-service. That business plan won't work. Um, well, it won't. <laughs> and, uh, and we have lots of experience with that. So no conflicts. Um, but we're going to talk about medical neglect and, um, uh, and just kind of go through it. Some of this is, is going to be reasonably obvious to you. Um, but I just want to touch bases just in case. Um, so starting out, <clears throat> excuse me, starting out with an 11-year-old with type 1 diabetes at home, and the blood sugars are out of control. So how do we know that? Well, you know, despite what we do, nothing gets better. And so what can be done? Well, um, you know all this, I hope. And I hope I have it correct for those of you that are diabetes specialists. And I don't know that we diagnose a lot of kids that way, um, but it's the classic adult presentation. Um, one of the things that point out to uh, our community partners is that often when uh, type 1 diabetes, uh, we figure it out, it's because they're hospitalized for DKA. Um, it's that surprise, you're really sick type of uh, uh, presentation. Um, and that um, I think that they don't fail to recognize the seriousness of that sometimes. You'll say it's serious, but it's not always clear that they understand it quite the same way. And sometimes they do. So the uh, history in this case is the parents have given over control of the insulin shots to the child at 11 years of age. So. Brings in a log showing blood glucose levels are averaging about 100 for the three times a day that he tests. Um, 
and it's been that way. Sound like any case that you've ever seen? <clears throat> and of course, the <laughs> I, it's difficult for me to imagine that anybody that works with somebody with diabetes is not aware of this, that, uh, that they doctor the records just before they come in. Um, I don't even think you could be new enough to this that you wouldn't know that, um, much less anyone with experience. But you get these things where they look, these records look so good, um, and you know that they're false records. But they've got this appointment, and they haven't been writing in the login, so they need to uh, put something in. And of course, the real kicker is this, a hemoglobin A1C um, that's higher. So the tattletale hemoglobin A1C um, that uh, has that conflict with, with the logs. So what does it all mean? Well, poor control. Um, they're not giving the shots. It's not getting the shots. Perhaps not getting the shots in a location that, it, that it's absorbed well. Probably not that. Um, uh, not recording. So one of the things that I learned back in the old days in, uh, at Michigan State, I had a pediatric endocrinologist, and it was his viewpoint that there should only be one hospitalization with diabetes, and that would be the first one. Thereafter, if you were good, um, or I'd probably say optimal, um, that, uh, that you should be able to handle anything that comes along as an outpatient. And oddly enough, he was able to. Um, I know over a five-year period, he had one return customer in, in a pediatric endocrinology practice. Now, he would be on the phone, you know, walking him through every 15 minutes of take more insulin check, you know, and all that stuff. So he was basically doing what we do in a hospital as an outpatient thing. But his notion was that between the doctor and the patient, if you real, you know, whether you got sick, whether something else happened, you ought to be able to handle even mild decay as an outpatient, and you should never be back. If you are back, then from his point of view, it would be a failure, a system failure between the physician and, and the patient. And in his particular case, because he's a go-getter, probably more the patient. And that's, an, and that's something we have to teach our partners. Because it's pretty frustrating with, uh, um, with what they do. Um, sometimes they just don't take us quite as seriously, or they'll say it's complicated. I heard that yesterday. It's like, well, yeah, you make this report, but we have to go through our, our criteria and everything, and it's complicated. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, this is something that you know, we'll rattle off to people and say, gee, look at all these bad things that could happen and trying to impress them, you know, to move and get some sort of urgency uh, in terms of what's going on. But the key thing is, can the parents do what they need to do, or does child need to be in another environment? And one of the things that we get in, in child abuse in general is when a child is abused, and when we say abuse, we mean neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and a variety of other things. The, um, when we're talking about um, child abuse, if you, if you think of sort of a, the average child is here getting average sort of parenting, when the abuse happens, they need, now need above average parenting. So every one of these ch children that, that there's abuse or abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, and that, 
They now need above average parenting. The parent, however, often is not average, but they're below average. So we have a gap. The question is, can services, including us, but can services bridge that gap? And can we make that work? Or is the gap too big and they need to be in a different environment? So it's not a matter if you want to say parents are evil. You can say that, you can say they're bad. And after you've had some fun with that, get over it. And then let's be more, more, uh, um, more utilitarian and everything. Let's, let's decide that what we're going to do is we're going to say is they just can't do it. You know, not everybody can drive a car. You know, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just they're just not up to it. And not everybody's up to parenting. And maybe they're not up to parenting now. Uh, often we see something where somebody might be younger. They can't really take care of kids. Maybe they have too many kids. Maybe they can't take care of the kids they have. And then they, uh, when they're 10 years, 15 years older, perhaps they could. But that doesn't meet the child's time frame. So sometimes the children have to be somewhere else, uh, perhaps in kinship care, perhaps foster care, or be adopted or something. But the child uh, isn't exactly in sync with the time frame of what they're doing. So a lot of it, it we can think of as sort of um, more like a no-fault thing. Not trying to push some blame, it's just not working. And sometimes I think that that's a, a more useful approach. Um, so with children then that are uh, uh, problems of abuse, and particularly with medical neglect, um, I know they're frustrating, but I think sometimes you know, the, most we can, the best thing we can do is, is sometimes just sort of say is that here's the needs, the needs aren't being met, they have to be met. Um, and they need to be in a different situation. So in this case, the parents have to take some control and responsibility, strictly medically adherent. So if I was to see a kid like this in this situation, what I would do is, well, for our child protection team, say, we get called in anytime there's a child abuse report. In Florida, we've got a unique system um, in the world, actually, that we have 200,000 child abuse reports, so more than that per year in the state of Florida. We're big. We're now the number three most populous state. And so every one of these 200,000 reports is read by a medical person in the child protection team. Nobody does that except, except us. It's a safety net. So not only does our, what we call DCF there, not, as, not only does DCF get the reports and do the standard thing that social services does throughout the country, but medically, we're also looking at them. They come to our child protection team. And we decide what's going to happen. When we have something that comes in coded as medical neglect, or as we read through the, the information, and we see that it's medical neglect. That's what we call a mandatory. And it's in law. It's actually in our state law, which is also unique to Florida. And in that law, it says we have to see these kids or evaluate these kids in some way. Now, sometimes that's medical record review. <clears throat> For instance, if it's diabetes or asthma or something else like that, as, as a child abuse pediatrician, the question is, would an exam help? If I haven't come to our clinic, would that help? And the answer is, they're already being seen by somebody that's more specialized in this area than me. You know, so what am I going to contribute? So more likely, it's medical record review. I would get in touch with the, the physician or the uh, clinic, and I would say, what, what's your concern? And try to understand that better than just the initial reporting information. Um, in my report, then, that we write up, 
we would share with DCF, uh, be available to police and prosecutors if, if need be, although it, hopefully it wouldn't rise to that level with these things. Um, in that, I would have a recommendation that they have to do this. And failure to do this, and I don't know if you write this in your reports, but you could, is a failure to do this would be medical neglect. So you've said this is the bar. I might say if, if they aren't, if they don't uh, come to an appointment by Friday, that's medical neglect. You can say those things. Why? Because we're doctors. We can do that. Whatever we say is golden, and we can do that. Um, but you know who defines medical neglect? We do. So we can do it. If you just say they need to do something, but you don't put a time frame on it, then why wouldn't somebody just wait? You know, let's take a month and do it. So, in point of fact, is we need to write recommendations. Sometimes they're crisp, uh, and then make a difference. That's how we're going to make people listen to us. A lot of times, uh, a DCF or DCYF will come back and they'll sort of say, "Well, you've told us that you're upset, but what do you want?" You know, it's not just labeling. That's no good. It's like saying strep throat. Aha! And it's like, yeah, okay, but now what? What are we going to do with that? So. Um, we need to sometimes not just you know, make a diagnosis or say it's that, but we need to say this is what we want. Here's the outline of exactly what we need uh, and see if we can get that. Um, so you can say such things. In the olden days, I'll give you another example. You know those kids in the um, newborns? If they say something really bad, you report for child abuse because you know, they're scary people sometimes. Like they say they're going to kill their kid. You, know, you want to get somebody involved. But there are situations sometimes where you're pretty uneasy with the family, but you're not quite feeling like it's a child abuse report at this point, and you're in that gray zone somewhere. There's always a gray zone. Um, and what I used to do, and maybe this sounds a little like the old days, but um, when I was in Iowa early in my training, we had a, a, a halfway decent public health, public nurse system. Um, and what I would do is I would say that they have to have a visit by a public uh, health nurse. And I said, that's my medical plan. Failure to have that visit by that would be medical neglect. Okay? And why is it medical neglect? Because I said so. Okay? Now, you can't be completely arbitrary and authoritarian because, you know, then you're just a jerk. But, you know, that's not going to work. But... There are things you can do, and so sometimes it's a failure of us not being imaginative enough that, that is a bit of an issue. Um, I would certainly encourage you to work with people that work with child abuse here um, if you're trying to frame such an issue. Perhaps they know some of the secret ways of frame, saying some things uh, that get people's attention. Okay. Medical neglect failure to provide or failure to allow needed care. It's a subset of neglect. And here's at least some of the common ones that um, some of my team put together uh, in Florida. Um, we actually have uh, um, a website, uh, and I can actually uh, get that for you for free. You can uh, actually go look at it. We have some modules that we've put together uh, as part of our, our child protection team system, state system, um, that talk about each of these subjects particularly useful, um, I think, for newbies. Um, and I think it's also useful particularly for community partners who are saying what these things are and why it is they're bad. 
If I was going to rank order these, I think probably for what we see, dental would be top for me. That that seems to be a problem. And that's the one that's difficult. Um, American Academy of um, Pediatric Dentistry has, um, uh, has criteria what they call um, dental neglect. And um, it's basically that you tell somebody that, it's, that they've got a bad problem and they're not doing anything, or if the child's in pain or, or something and no, no attention is happening. People say, I don't have a dentist, but there's always the emergency room if you're in pain. So uh, it's not a great solution, but it's a solution. Um, so the, uh, um, uh, for dental neglect and everything else, it's, the complication is, is there a dentist that's available? And we have areas, at least in where I'm from, where you can say you're sending them to a dentist, but uh, who would that be? And so it's, it's complicated and takes a lot of work on. Um, but nevertheless, we, uh, diabetes and asthma, uh, regularly seen that, um, obviously malnutrition, and not just failure to thrive or, or extreme obesity with complications, but uh, you can also have normal weight uh, malnutrition, you know, where it's one of those crazy diets and the kid's actually um, suffering health-wise, um, even if the weight is okay. We also have some people that aren't <clears throat> complying with their newborns as far as HIV prophylaxis, um, and that's a serious concern of ours because um, somebody might get a bad disease and they might die. Um, and then uh, we have, where I'm at, Wilson Children's Hospital in Jacksonville, we have medically complex uh, clinic um, where we see kids, and uh, I've worked in that area myself. And those things are tricky because you have various things. For instance, I hope this isn't so much the case, but I know there was sort of a debate when I was a resident. It seemed as if some of the neurologists um, were co more comfortable than I was, and uh, a number of us that were in developmental disabilities, they were comfortable that uh, uh, if a kid was, wasn't too big, if they were kind of short, didn't weigh a lot, they're easier to handle. And uh, hopefully you've heard of that or not heard of that. Yeah. Well, anyway, sort of the notion is that, well, it's okay if, you know, they're not getting tons of food because they're just not, you know, super fat or hard to deal with. And that's sort of the bonsai approach, you know, to kids, you know, keep them small and, and sort of work. In developmental disabilities, on the other hand, we're thinking, no, let's, you know, let's give them enough nutrition, keep their health up, keep their uh, immune status, you know, fairly decent. Um, and so um, uh, there's differences sometimes, the general approach, and we have to iron out some of our thoughts before, um, before we ask others. Um, sometimes we see medical neglect where there's been a precipitating something else, and then they medically neglect. So it's not just child abuse. <clears throat> when we do reports, we list one, two, three. And sometimes I'll say physical abuse, number one. Physical abuse, number two, because it's a different kind of physical abuse. Even number three. And then, we'll, and then the thing that we suggest for all of our teams, we have 23 teams in, in Florida covers every child. Um, the thing to say is, just before you think you're done with your report, think through, is there any other neglect going on? And actually, it's a couple of people had signs over their desk, you know, you know, think about neglect. Um, so we see this with burn cases, where somebody says, well, geez, the kid's got a burn, and if I bring him in, 
uh, somebody's going to take my kids away because uh, they, you know, they, you know how the state is, they're going to take them away. Well, they wait. A couple days later, it's infected. They bring them in finally, and now we will take their kids away because it wasn't just the burn even, but now they've uh, had medical neglect. Um, a child that has healing fractures, um, perhaps, um, and uh, abdominal injuries are always a concern, um, uh, particularly since that's the most fatal form of child abuse, uh, physical abuse there is. Abusive head trauma only has about a 20, 25% death rate, but the abdominal abuse is even worse. Fortunately, a lot less common. You know all these things. Neglect is probably the worst form of child abuse. It's the most common form of child abuse. Um, the top causes of death typically around the country would be unsafe sleep. Uh, it would be drowning. And third place would be physical abuse. Uh, it varies a little bit from place to place. Um, but nevertheless, death, is, uh, death um, typically neglect is, the mo is by far the most common uh, from maltreatment. To the dead child, it doesn't matter whether you meant to do it or not. So what we did in Florida is we took some Florida law, and we took it from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this is, um, I'm not trying to reproduce this in a series of slides, because that would be tedious and, and too long. But um, this is uh, the Committee on Child Abuse and Neglect. And it was uh, um, their statement on medical neglect and what it is. And so I'd reference that. You'll have, I think there's a website for this that you'll have all these PowerPoints on. So uh, you can look it up if you need it. But uh, what we did in Florida is about three years ago, um, we had a, a situation with one of the legislators' aides um, in which it brought out medical neglect issues. Um, and we were able to turn it, our, our Florida chapter, American Academy of Pediatrics, in my committee on child abuse, we were able to turn it to get them to adopt language that came straight out of the academy. So we were pretty pleased with that in the sense that uh, it wasn't legislators just making things up, but it was uh, uh, something that had some reference uh, from elsewhere. And the academy statement is reasonably good. I have a little bit of this here. It means the failure to provide or allow needed care. <coughs> or failure to seek timely and appropriate medical care for a serious problem that it gets into that reasonable person thing. You know, what would a reasonable person do? And then there's things where it isn't medical neglect. I mean, what is not medical neglect? And again, there's a little bit of a judgment call in all these things. Um, but if they've made some efforts to get the care, it's not exactly medical neglect in, in, a, in a lot of situations. Um, the other thing, and this comes in purely with medically complex, is sometimes um, a child doesn't do well medically, and that isn't necessarily the parent's fault because um, they were neglectful. And then we have the spectrum of, um, when I was back when I was, uh, I go back to when I was resident, I remember cystic fibrosis. There were the parents that were very meticulous, and their child would live into their late 20s. Um, there were the ch parents that weren't so meticulous, and that child would die in the teens. And kind of the lifespan depended on you know, uh, the parents. I had a trisomy 18 child that was 16 years old. 
didn't think that was possible. And it's like, well, wow, you should have seen how that mother was. She was just so compulsive and everything else, better than I would have been or other people. So there's some sort of, a, again, a, a spectrum of these things. And we have to get back to reasonable person. Um, we have the issue about recommended care. Is it going to be a benefit? So if you, were, if you got into something where you had to go to court, and you had to say, well, the parents are refusing chemotherapy for a child. And the judge says, okay, so if they don't get it, they die. Um, what are the odds that the chemotherapy does any good? And you say, oh, 1%. That's not going to sway a judge too much. They say, you mean you're going to make them go through chemotherapy and, and all the bad consequences that that sometimes uh, entails? And you're only getting a 1% increase, um, not swaying them. You know, if you said it's 90% effective, it's like, whoa, now you've got the judge's attention. So what's the right numbers? Nobody knows. It's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And we've had some cases around the country through the years that uh, you may have heard of. And it really gets into what's going to be the benefit? What's the benefits and what's the cost? And some sort of sense of that. And um, uh, and that's part of the calculus that has to go into this. Um, sometimes the parents don't follow all the recommendations, and particularly with some kids that are complex, um, they might be seeing four specialists, and you know they can't make all those appointments sometimes, particularly if they have some other kids and they don't have a car and some of that. You can imagine that um, sometimes they're not perfect. But a key thing is medical neglect is a medical diagnosis. It is not a child protective services diagnosis. Okay, it's not a legal diagnosis. It's a medical diagnosis. Um, and it's a medical decision how we do this. And um, at least for us, uh, it comes to our child protection team to say it's medical neglect. Now again, if it's an asthma problem um, that keeps recurring and everything else, we're going to work with the people in the asthma clinic. Um, to say that. We're not doing it solo all by ourselves, but we're working together as a team uh, to put this together. Um, but the expertise is child abuse that we can bring is, is sort of basically knowing how to work on the system. So in Florida, um, by law, we have to have a multidisciplinary team meeting. And look at all the people that have to show up. Now, as it turns out, we're able to do this by telephone for some cases that are kind of like obviously not there. Like, let's say that they're on visit on the weekend and mom reports dad for medical neglect because dad's not putting the desitin on the baby's bottom four times a day like she does. Okay? Um, if you haven't seen such cases, let me tell you, there are a lot of those kind of cases out there and everything. Uh, one parent is more meticulous about something than the other. It usually seems like it's the mother that's more meticulous than the dad, but we've seen a few cases that went the other way uh, as well. That's the case that I'm not going to bring the child in to see. Um, I don't know how much medical records I'm going to even look at because it's a dumb case. Um, but by our law, we have to actually write a report. So my three-sentence report um, that I'm going to do in this case, um, that we'll staff by phone, is that, yeah, the kid's not having bad diaper rashes. Uh, they just differ over what they think should be done. Um, it's not really medical neglect. But here are the things. Uh, hopefully you know all these things in terms of how working with people.
And it's particularly important for, uh, uh, for various community providers who are actually the ones that go into the home, not us, but the people that actually go. Yeah, let's see. There's a lot of things that we need to figure out in cases, and you probably do. Um, and certainly I think that the, uh, my hope is that the primary care physician uh, certainly knows uh, a lot of what's going on in the home. We know that people uh, get in trouble because they don't trust uh, medical professionals sometimes. Uh, they have different belief systems. I believe one way, they believe differently, you know, and I want them to believe my way. You know, at some point is that just, you know, uh, a conflict and how much of that is is actually uh, uh, objectively medical neglect. We want people to, particularly in the investigation, to go out and see what's the parent done um, and why didn't they follow through. And hopefully in their clinics we're trying to find that out long before a child abuse report ever gets generated. Um, it's important that we get records. Um, so from our child abuse thing, um, I often will ask for pharmacy records because pharmacy records are pretty interesting to find out have they been doing this. For instance, you give a monthly med but it's been three months since they last refilled it. Um, that's going to tell me a lot. So it doesn't matter so much what they say. Uh, sometimes they have objective ways of, of um, getting some sort of sense of that. It's important to get into the belief systems of the parents themselves, what's going on. Sometimes parents don't, you think that they would know that things are bad, but sometimes they don't. It's like, well, you've taken care of this, this uh, uh, say, ketoacidosis before, so what's the problem? Yeah, gee, the asthma, when they're sick, you bring them to the hospital. You take care of them and they're good to go. Not realizing that, wait a minute, they could have died. Um, and, uh, and, and yet uh, they sort of see it as the healthcare system is so good that they don't see it as the risk that perhaps you perceive it. Um, do they have different belief systems? And this comes up with religious exemptions. Um, we have various uh, religions that uh, um, don't believe in um, health care. They believe that uh, praying would be a uh, better alternative than medical care. Uh, my general sense is that most people in the, in the country would pray and get medical care, both. <laughs> they would pray that you know what you're doing. Um, and, uh, so hopefully, you know, that doesn't have to be an either or, but for some people it is. Uh, and then we have to decide, you know, does it cross the line? Um, and is there a pattern? Uh, what's been going on? Um, I'm fortunate because in our system, I can actually, our child protection team, we can access all of the uh, um, DCF records. We can just go online and, and look at them. And I can look at medical records from any team anywhere in the state. So if they're in Miami, I can find out what, what, what that team saw and everything and pull it up. So we have the, kind of a statewide database. And that's really helpful. One of the difficulties when you have little silos of hospital here, hospital there, is that that's a good way uh, for neglect to flourish. Munchausen syndrome by proxy particularly, um, uh, but in other kinds of abuses. So as much as can, we need to be knocking down some of these silos. We have a law in, in Florida that says that as a child protection team, uh, 
we can go into any hospital, see the child, and look at the records. I don't need privileges. Privilege is a 20th century or 19th century concept. Um, in the 21st century, why would you do that? It's about the child. So if it's about the child, you should be able to go anywhere and see what's going on. So that's not true for all physicians, but true for our child protection team. So what are the protective capacities? Will they accept things? What's going on with their mental illness, their substance abuse, the other impairments that adults have? One of the things, if you were at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, uh, they've done some work and, and others have around the country, um, but they um, particularly have looked at the issue of when you write that prescription, this is with adults primarily, um, why are they not compliant? Well, it turns out a chunk of the people can't read. So, and they don't tell you they can't read. So you just write this prescription like it's going to work and you're not getting the results you expect. Um, and then you're frustrated because you think they're not complying. Um, or you say four times a day, and they're not sure what four times a day means, um, even if they can read that far. I remember when I was a, a, a first year resident, I had a story by, by a third year resident. Um, he was telling me he had a real problem with getting this otitis media in this one case under control. They kept giving like several different antibiotics and just couldn't get it under control and he was frustrated and you know, kind of doubting that the mother was doing this right. So finally he got down to basics and he says, listen, he said, you got the medicine? She says, yeah. He says, it was pink, right? Yeah. And it was a liquid, right? Yeah. And you took this medicine and you, you gave it three times a day. Yeah. And he said, and you used it all up and the bottle's empty. And she said, no. I said, it's not empty. He said, but you did it for 10 days. It should have all been gone. She said, yeah, but the whole teaspoon wouldn't fit in the ear. So he said, okay, plan B is we'll give it by mouth this time. Let's see if that amoxicillin works a little better that way. So again, sort of the notion that are things going the way we think they're going? And sometimes we fool ourselves. Just another example of, of that is, a, I think it's an unpublished study. But years ago, somebody was looking at stairway falls in, in Denver and for an ER type of uh, research. And they actually did a, a scene visit. And 14% of the time, there were no stairs. So you think that's what happened, but you don't know that to be true. Um, so sometimes we live in our own world, uh, and we have to sort of analyze that. Is a child using attention illness? Um, in some cases, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is not the worst thing to think about when we're getting noncompliance. Um, is anybody benefiting from the, what looks like medical neglect? You know, uh, and we have to think about that. It's not the first thought we have, but it is a thought that you have to keep in the back of your mind. Um, do they fit in? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know how it is with social media now, but I know it's on Pete Endo uh, service when it's a fourth year uh, med student. And um, it was interesting because uh, it, this was in Ann Arbor, and uh, there was like the teenagers would kind of all come in together uh, with their diabetes. 
and this is before internet and before social media, but somehow they just kind of clustered all in. You know, they would make sure they all got out a little out of control at the same time so they could see each other, uh, this sort of stuff. And the endocrinologist thought that was both sad and hilarious. Um, I, I don't know if that's even worse now, but there are agendas out there beyond what we think. Okay. So immunizations, three-year-old girl seen laceration in the foot, um, and you find out she doesn't have tetanus shots. In fact, she's actually never seen any health providers. So is that medical neglect? How many would say yes? How many say no? And a lot of undecided, okay. That's what have been my guess. It turns out it's not, uh, at least in most places. Um, not seeing a doctor is nothing that quite says you have to. I know they're stupid if they don't see us, right? But, but nevertheless, they're allowed to. There's that First Amendment thing in the Constitution. Um, and certainly there's some religious groups that uh, don't seek medical care. Um, Massachusetts was, um, uh, got a lot of attention because they're home of Christian science, and that's one of the big uh, religious groups that uh, doesn't get medical care. And um, uh, they since had changed some laws. Um, but a lot of states uh, um, still have a law saying it's not child abuse uh, if they don't get medical care. You can, the courts can compel medical care. And most states, you can charge it as a crime if there's a bad outcome for failure to get medical care. But if it hasn't gotten to the bad outcome uh, stage, usually it's not child abuse in their exemptions. Uh, American Academy of Pediatrics is not in favor of that. One of the reasons is that uh, we want equal care for all. Uh, second of all, what the state does, and you may not be aware of this, but they actually go to uh, the parents and they will come back and they'll say, what religion are you? And in a libertarian state like New Hampshire, you would think there'd be some people who would say, it's no business of the state what religion we are. And yet they ask. And the thing is, are you an approved, recognized religion or not? Now, interestingly, it's not the Christian scientists that uh, strike me as, as interesting for that question, but they're literally, and I'm not making this up, but there was a church of John and Judy, um, which I guess is the membership list, all right there. And um, anyway, they, were, uh, uh, they got a religious exemption in one state some years ago. So I, I don't think it personally it's the business of Child Protective Services to ask your religion. I think it should, everybody should be treated the same. That when you're 18, do whatever you want to yourself. But till you're 18, uh, you can't. There's actually a Supreme Court decision that is somewhat on point uh, from about 1946. Uh, but it's not been recently tested uh, to see where it stands. So this one typically would not. In California, as you know, they tightened up because they had that measles epidemic at Disneyland. And they realized that's economically bad, plus it's just bad you know, for health reasons. And so um, they've tightened it up now that you have to have reasonably strict medical contraindication for shots. But otherwise, uh, relig religious exemptions and belief exemptions do not get you out of uh, having to have shots. But you still don't have to have medical care. We can't use child abuse system as a club for people not doing everything we want them to do. You know, uh, you can see how that we could become abusers that way. Eight-year-old boy with asthma supposed to use his inhaler and his rescue inhaler. 
Now he's in the PICU. And we go back and we find out, well, first of all, he's been on the ventilator for 18 hours, gets off, and this is his third PICU hospitalization in the last two years. He's had, uh, actually been in the hospital seven times. And he says he forgets. And the drugstore seems to agree with that. <laughs> Both parents smoke. Sound like some of your cases? Yeah. Or some variation on that. So is this medical neglect? Yeah. Ah, that's medical neglect, sure. Absolutely. This child keeps having life-threatening things. I would write down life-threatening medical neglect, um, and that would be my diagnosis. Number one, that, and then I go into a paragraph explaining it, or three paragraphs explaining it. But right the, at the lead, when you write something, don't bury a paragraph and then somewhere at the end in there you say, oh yeah, by the way, this is abuse. Tell them right up front what it is. When you have a report or a medical record, and then somebody reads it from the outside, um, Child Protective Services or the court or something else like that, um, they're not going to read your, your, your whole novel. The nice. The that you just heard indicates a code red within the complex. Flashing stroke indicates that the alarm is in your area. Please await further instructions. The activation is in Building 3, Level 3. Okay. Uh, nobody in this room, that's good. Yeah. All right. So. This is a drill. This is a drill. So it's medical neglect. And, um, and the key thing is, is you want to make it really obvious to people. They are going to skip through all the stuff that you have. They're going to go right to your diagnosis or impression or whatever you call it. And I number them. And I put it in bold, and I say what it is. Child abuse, yes, no, indeterminate. Okay? But let them know what you're thinking. Don't make it hard to read. I don't want to read the novel to find out if the butler did it. I want to know right at the front, you know, did the butler do it? That's what you have to do. Okay, medically complex, neglect is a subset of all this. Not telling you anything you don't know. So, three-year-old. Uh, is uh, at five months of age uh, with shaken baby, um, a lot of uh, brain atrophy, which you'd expect, quadriplegia, uh, blind, developmentally about four months of age. This is a real case that I had to deal with. Um, needs a gastrostomy tube, trach, a lot of medication. How's this child going to die? This child will die, by the way. What, how? Pneumonia. Yeah, they'll die in pneumonia. Um, that's what happens to any mammal when you lay them down long enough. Um, horses will do that, uh, all kinds of mammals. And so um, uh, when they do die, a lot of times medical examiners will say that they died of pneumonia secondary to cl probably closed head injury or whatever they want to call it. And the manner is homicide. Injuries convict. They understand that. Um, so during the day, mom is, is the... Uh, Caregiver, dad's not there. And the, what comes in is that mom's not given the seizure meds. Uh, and you find out that there's, the trach's disconnected, but it's only when the mom's around. 
So is that medical neglect? Would be a concern for it. You know, you want to know more about the seizure meds. You want to know what's going on with the trach tube and mom. You know, the nursing care doesn't get that. So that would be something where you'd want to be thinking about that. And you want to look at that. I was going to show you just this one last thing, but maybe it's gone. Um, it was a sign that was in New Zealand that says family violence is not okay. And the cool part is that um, it was in this dinky little town. Let's see if I can recover this. And um, it's something that's not in, when you go into Jacksonville, you don't see it. But I think all of our towns should have a little sign on, as you go into town that suggests that's the case. Uh, a ministry in New Zealand hands these, has this stuff out and everything. Um, but I thought it was real cool that this is like a, a little mission statement when you walk into the town. And we could all do that. You know, that's, this is not that hard to do that. You can see they didn't spend a lot of time, money on their, on their sign stuff here. It's not the most sophisticated thing. But this is a town, literally, if you blinked, you missed it. So, Okay, I want to tell you a little bit about some handouts that, are gonna, that we have on the website. If it's me and somebody says handouts, I tend not to ever follow through on those things. I'm going to suggest you actually do that if you can. What I have here, and I can't show this on the screen in a way that you can really see. So let me just describe them to you. Um, in Georgia, uh, I was approached years ago by a committee on foster care. And what this committee did is they had come up with a one-page form. Um, and they ran it by our child abuse committee. And we made a few little tweaks on it and everything else. But what this form is, is it's what you need to know. If they take the kid out tonight, this is what the foster parent needs to know and what you, the physician, needs to know in the next day or two. Are immunizations on this? No, because you, you don't need immunizations. What does it matter? Next couple days, that won't matter at all. But allergies are. The foster mom needs to know if I feed the kids peanut butter and jelly, do they have a peanut allergy and are they going to die? What you need to know, if you've ever had these kids, is if I give them that amoxicillin, do they have an allergy, are they going to die? I don't mean to get into the are they going to die things, but there's a number of that. So what we have in here is, is the form. We had this, uh, they promised the legislature and me, I was actually on a legislature panel uh, some years ago, and uh, what's called DFACS, the Child Protective Services in Georgia said, sure, we'll, we'll get this around. We're going to put it on the iPads that all of our investigators have, um, and everyone will have. And they never followed through on that. So we took this to Florida and put a different logo at the top that said Florida, had Florida stuff on it, same thing. And what we did there is we got DCF there in Florida, the top people to agree with our Academy of Pediatrics that yes, this is a form and they should use this every time there's a removal. About four years later, we polled people around the state, um, investigators and things around the state, and none of them knew the form existed. It's in the rules and regulations of Department of Children and Family. But here's an example of a system where the top says one thing and the troops don't know it exists. Um, so it's still a great idea. However, in the state of Washington, they found out about this. I sent them some stuff and they use it. Um, so this is available to you. But sometimes you're sitting there saying, I'm feeling bad because I don't know what's going on. You could ask um, your various child protective services to give you this form and to use this. We even set it up as a protocol uh, again, uh, only from the on high people at Florida, but 
we've set up as a protocol to say failure to fill out this form is medical neglect. Because this is the stuff you give a babysitter. You can't just have your kid go into foster care. I know it doesn't feel good, they're taking your kids away and all that, but you have an obligation for your children. Um, so that's one of the forms there. I also brought a bunch of forms because, we've ha because of our laws and what we've had to do in Florida, uh, and the and emphasis on it, um, we have some other stuff. So um, have some stuff about breastfeeding, what you can get Child Protective Services to help get information, because remember they're in the home. Um, and some questionnaires they can do uh, to help you with. Uh, fail some failure to thrive, asthma, diabetes. For instance, what could they do with uh, asthma in the home? Could they check to see if there's an inhaler? Is it clean? Where is it stored? Is the insulin on the kitchen counter in the sun? Is it in the refrigerator? Where is that insulin? Um, what does it look like? Also, we suggest that when, you're th when they're there, that when they're there, um, get a spot check, glucose. First of all, <laughs> first of all, can they actually get a spot check, glucose? That would be a good thing to know even in itself. And then what would it be? We don't ask the investigator to make a decision about it. We just say, just tell the doctor what it is. If it's like 400, you'll have our attention real fast, of course. But uh, nevertheless, just don't, you don't decide, but you get it to us. And then the final thing that um, we have, and, and we have some stuff on medically complex children too. These are checklists and they're available uh, electronically for you. Please use them, just take them. You know, we don't have a copyright on them, they're yours. Uh, you can have them. And the final thing you have is home safety checklists, both a, a, a big one and then things that are broken up in terms of age for six months, uh, second six, toddlers. We use this, this can be used, you can give it to parents of newborns in terms of how to baby-proof their house, or you can use it in terms of finding out later on, uh, you know, are they baby-proofing, or if there's a neglect situation, you know, what else might the kid get hurt or be at risk for? Um, and these are developed through uh, the Florida chapter of um, Prevent Child Abuse America and uh, their home visiting program, um, and uh, Healthy Families Florida, and then we modified them uh, for our child protection team. So give me a number of forms and things, but you need data uh, in these things. And you've got people that actually go into homes, which isn't me, um, and it's not you, but there are other people, partners that do that things. And they could give us some useful things. For instance, they could snap a picture and send it to you. I don't, we don't do bruises by pictures because I don't know what those are. And, uh, I don't think they're good enough. But, but they could snap a picture of, of medical supplies and document that they're there and what it looks like and things. So there are a lot of different options and, we, and I, I encourage you to reach out. We're trying to do it. We're partially successful. Um, but I encourage you to uh, look at these things and decide for yourself if any of these things could be helpful. So that's it. Any questions or comments?
as soon as we report a family on a pediatric endocrinologist, yeah. as soon as I make that step, you know, instantly there's a, a lack of trust or a conflict between the family. And then when the state comes in and says the report was unfounded, yeah. you know, no, no further needed, uh, it really makes us look like we overhauled that we're adversarial to the parents rather than protecting the child. And I don't know a good way around it, so I, I have to say, it got to be really egregious before I will even go to the state because I kind of know what their standard has been. Yeah. I, no, I sympathize with that. Um, to the extent you can, because we have a child protect, medical child protection team system, 111 medical providers, um, uh, those cases would come to us and we would be there with you in terms of doing it. It doesn't mean we still wouldn't go down a flame sometimes. Um, we can't be sure, but we can advocate higher. The other thing is, remember, you've got 25-year-old investigators sometimes, okay? And you're all older than that. Um, and so, and a lot more experience. And so, you could say, I'll go to their supervisor, but don't. It's a waste of time, because their supervisor was in on the decision. So go at least two levels higher when you, when you start your challenge um, or anything. If one advantage as a child protection team person, because we work and we have a great relationship with, with our DCF and everything else, I'd start out with, the re with uh, a regional administrator and let it work six levels down to get down to the person. I don't always get my way, but I do know how to aim higher. Uh -huh. Other thoughts? So. When your eight-year-old application is actually 16, yeah. <laughs> is, there, is, there less, is there less interest on the part of the state in intervening for the adolescent who's almost about to age out of the system anyway? I mean, yeah. And this is a very, again, a very real problem here. Now, why bother reporting because they're going to say the child is, should be able to take care of themselves? That's a good question. You know, about 16 is about your last shot. Um, because if they dawdle for a year, they will age out. You know, they'll start to age out. And, and um, so that's hard. Because sometimes I, I feel like uh, our DCF will drag their feet if they're about to age out. And then, oh my gosh, they turned 18. Well, I guess there's nothing to be done. Um, and it sounds malicious to say they dawdle on it, but I think they do sometimes. Um, and uh, sometimes we push hard because we feel it's our last shot at, at getting anywhere. Uh, so it sets the stage for a little bit of, of uh, potential conflict from our urgency, and they're kind of waiting to just have this case resolve itself. Um, so it's difficult. And then the 16-year-old is 16, and. They're not always easy to deal with. Um, so, can you do? So, uh, I know Xander will be doing a new conference today uh, with the residents and, and others who might be interested. He presented some cases to us in Grand Rounds. I think he will welcome us presenting cases that make it challenging for us to discuss and consider those types of is this or is this not in the realm of medical, uh, medical abuse for children. But, but thank you for joining us for two days. Thank you. I think we have the link.